Amen. How, how good it is when the family of God dwells together in spirit, in faith and unity. Friends, one of the reasons why we give you these bulletins with words in them is that so you take them home with you. And you can meditate on the words of the songs. And if there's one song I would hope and encourage you to meditate on this week as you go home, from here is this particular song, Oh, How Good It Is. Because as, as the chorus of this song says, So with one voice we'll sing to the Lord, and with one heart we'll live out His word, till the whole earth sees the Redeemer has come, for He dwells in the presence of His people. I hope you realize that our gathering together, our belonging to one another, it's not just so that we might be edified. That's true, but our belonging to one another is to show the world that God belongs, that God dwells in the presence of His people. Friends, this morning I would like for us to um, address a question, a question that you may ask yourself, you may have heard others ask you. It's an important question to remind ourselves often. If you're a member of this congregation, perhaps you've been here for a while, you've been a member for a while, and someone would ask you, what is Park Hills Baptist Church all about? What would you answer? If you're new to Park Hills and you're still trying to figure, figure us out, it's okay if you don't know this answer. Today will be a great uh, lesson to tell you what to say, what to answer, how to think about this question. But really, if you're a member of this church and you've been a member for a while, and someone would ask you, what is Park Hills all about? What would you say? Preach the gospel. That would be a great answer. Would you know how to give a quick, would you know how to give a quick answer? A short answer? A one-sentence answer? And would that answer be accurate? Well, this morning, I would like for us to look at these issues, look at this question, and, uh, and hopefully encourage us to uh, think of this question, what are we about? Last week, we looked at the question, or we looked at the theme of remembering the gospel. This morning, I would like for us to look at the question, remember our mission. Uh, when, uh, when we look at the last 12 to 18 months in the life of our congregation, We've addressed some, um, some challenging topics. If you've been with us for the last 12 to 18 months, you may have remembered that we have addressed some uh, topics that churches don't typically like to talk about because they're not very friendly to church growth. Topics such as uh, church membership or church discipline. They don't encourage churches to grow. So we, we, churches typically don't address these things. But friends, I want to say very clearly to you, even though we've addressed topics as difficult as those in the past, they're not necessarily our mission. And I know some of you feel like, wow, I really thought that since we talked about those topics, that that's what we're all about, church discipline and church membership. Those are not our mission. But they are the result of our mission. They're a component of what we do when our mission is fruitful. Because, friends, the gospel, when the gospel works in people's lives, 
when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed and it actually bears fruit, you will know what that fruit looks like. It looks like the church. When the gospel bears fruit in people's lives, what you get to see is the life of the church. The mission of the gospel is a church, and the mission of the church is the gospel. So I want us to, to step back a little bit and realize that even though we may have addressed in the 12, last 12 months difficult topics, they're not our mission. They're the result of our mission. But I want us to think of this. Uh, there's a, t- a quote that I read this week, and I want us to think about this. I think it's helpful. If you make disciples you will always get the church. But if you try to build the church, you will rarely get disciples. Let me say that again because I think it's helpful at least to, 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 to get us to think about this topic, about our mission. If you make disciples, you will always get the church. But if you try to build a church, you will rarely get disciples. So I want us to take a look at remembering our mission. Our mission, dear friends, it's not to grow the church. Let me say that again. I know I may be fired after this one. Our mission is not to grow the church. Now let me qualify that. I pray. I pray that church growth would be a result of our mission. God has given us a mission. But we must remember that it is God who builds up His church. And He has chosen to build up His church through the mission of His church. But what is that mission? And is that our mission? So remember our mission. That's the theme we're going to look at this morning. I encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Now, if you have your bulletins or if you're receiving our church-wide emails throughout the week, uh, you are told that the passage we're going to preach on today is going to be Colossians 1, 28 and 29. And by the way, we send that to you ahead of time, a few days ahead of time, to encourage you to read that passage, meditate on it, and come ready to hear what the Lord might have to say to us. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. But really, I'm going to do something different this morning. I'm going to ask us to read from verse 1 in chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 5, because that's a context that's sort of building up everything in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. It's as if we would be really deprived and we would miss it if all we read was just Colossians 1, 28 and 29. So let's begin with chapter 1, verse 1. If you're using a Bible providing the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 1021. Here's the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. 
all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in the faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what was, in what was suffered for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the Word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all His energy 
which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. This is a context of the passage that we're going to preach upon, which is our mission as a church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I pray that what Paul said in this last verse of, that we've read in verse 5, verse 2, that he delights to see how orderly we are and how firm we are in Christ Jesus. I pray this would be true of us this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, gracious God, how can we thank you enough? How can we praise you enough for what you have done for us, guilty sinners, to restore us to yourself? Oh, Lord, as we look and remember our mission as a church, I pray that you would use these words and then use the Holy Spirit to speak to us in fresh ways, to remind us of what we are all about, of the mission you have given to us. I pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. Friends, I hope it's no surprise, if you're a member of this church, that Colossians 1.28 is the verse that defines our mission. Our mission statement is very simple. I want to say it in one sentence, and it's this. Park Hills Baptist Church exists to glorify God by proclaiming Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. That's our one-sentence answer to the question, what are we all about? I want to say it again. If you're a visitor or a, a new member and you haven't yet reflected on it, write this down in your notes. We also have this on our website. But I encourage you, reflect on this. I want to say it again. Park Hills Baptist Church exists to glorify God by proclaiming Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature, perfect in Christ. That's our mission statement. That's what we're all about. But let's unpack it. What does this mean? In a very simple way, we're going to break this sentence in three parts. We're going to look at our overall purpose, why we exist. Our overall purpose, our overarching purpose is to glorify God. That's why we exist. So when somebody asks you, what is Parkhills all about? The first thing, the first word that should come to your mouth is, we exist to glorify God. Can you do that? Is that easy? That's the first go-to. That's our first base. If you're a baseball person, 
That's our first base. Then we'll go to two more. But the first one is to glorify God. Now, what does that mean? And why is our glory of God our overarching purpose? From the beginning of time, when we think of God's creation, God created mankind for the purpose of glorifying God. Remember when God came to, to create man? He said, let's make man in our image and likeness. Why? So that when all creation looks at man, what they see is a reflection of God. What they see is the image of God. What they see is the likeness of God. What they see is the glory of God. But do you know the rest of the story? Man failed. Man rebelled. And because of that rebellion, what happened? God had to separate man from himself. Death came in the picture. Separation between man and God. And God exiled Adam and Eve from the garden to remind them physically, to show them that this separation is real. That was the first excommunication, if you will. God excommunicated Adam and Eve from the garden to remind them, to tell them that this separation really is real. But then God had a plan. He planned to rescue a man, Abraham, 12 chapters later in the book of Genesis, through him to start a new nation who will reflect the glory of God among the nations, through whom God would bless all the nations of the world. And God called out Abraham and through him called out the nation of Israel, a nation who would bear his name, a nation who would listen to God, a nation who would do what God says and try to reverse where Adam blew it off. But you know the rest of the story. Israel failed, failed miserably. And what does God do? He exiles them. He kicks them out of the land to remind them that rebellion against God brings separation. And the, whole, the primary purpose of the exile was to show Israel that separation between man and God is real when mankind rebels against God. And Israel was really, really upset. They were really devastated for being kicked out of the land. But friends, the greatest loss Israel incurred was not separation from the land. The book of Ezekiel is a wonderful picture of the true meaning of the exile. And throughout the book of Ezekiel, there's a few moments, starting with chapter 10, when Ezekiel gets a vision of what is the true meaning of the exile. And Ezekiel sees a picture of the chariot of God with all its glory in the, in the Holy of Holies, ascending from the Holies of Holies and moving out of the Holies of Holies, moving to the temple, and then from the edge of the temple, it's moving out to the edge of Jerusalem, and then from the edge of Jerusalem, it's moving out. What Ezekiel sees is the glory of God moving away from Israel. That was the true greatest loss that Israel incurred through the exile, separation of the glory of God. It's not simply that they were kicked out of the land. 
It's the fact that God's glory left the land. That was the true and greatest meaning and tragedy of the exile. And then later in chapter 36, when God promises that He will cleanse the nation, that He will send His Holy Spirit to revive the nation in Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, and God will begin a new life in in this nation, and God will restore the temple in the subsequent chapters. And then in chapter 43, Ezekiel sees an incredible picture of the, of the people of God restored, the temple restored, and the glory of God coming back to the temple. That's what happens when God restores His people. It's about primarily and, and it predominantly about the glory of God being restored to God's people. So friends, when we, think of, when we think of the story of Israel, what they lost and what God promises to restore, it's ultimately about the glory of God. What's amazing is when we look at the rest of the story of the Old Testament, even when Israel came back from exile, even when they were restored to their land, the glory of God never returned back to the land as it had been promised. It is only when we go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, that we are told that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, the glory of God will restore to exiled Israel only in the coming of Jesus. That's why when Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John, He constantly speaks about the hour of glorification. Do you know what that hour of glorification was in the Gospel of John? Remember how we went through the Gospel of John a few weeks ago? The hour of glorification for Jesus in the Gospel of John is the hour of the cross. God finally comes in His glory to Israel. He comes to the temple. And that glory comes now to atone for the sins of God's people. That's the only way God's glory can come back to sinful Israel. To atone for the sins of the people so that the glory of God may be restored to a rebellious nation. That's the story of the glory of God in the Old Testament. And that's why it's only fulfilled when the coming, with the coming of Jesus. And that's why the only gateway to the glory of God is Christ. That's why when Paul speaks about being separated from God, it speaks about being separated from His glory. And when Paul speaks about being restored to God, he speaks about being restored to His glory. And this goes back even the Old Testament In the book of Isaiah, the passage that Kyle read earlier in the service for us, Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, God says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Time and again, the purpose of our existence, the purpose of our restoration, the purpose of our being as a church is the glory of God. So friends, when people ask you, 
What is Parkyos all about? The first thing we should say, the first base we should go to is the glory of God. We exist for the glory of God. The ultimate purpose for which God created us and redeemed us. Friends, this means that we exist as a church not to make a big name for ourselves. Not to make a big name of Parkos Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. We exist not to make a big name of our denomination. We exist for the ultimate purpose that the nature and character and the dominion of God might be made visible here in Austin. How? When people look at how God dwells in the midst of his people. That's the glory of God. That's why we exist as a church. Friend, do you ever consider that the purpose of the church is bigger than simply edifying you? The purpose of the church is, is bigger than simply to give you a network of social relationships so that you feel connected. And so you have a support group. I mean, that's great, and we want to do that, and we want to be that. We want to be those things. We want to edify you. We want to be a place where you, this is where you, you feel connected. But, but there is an even bigger purpose behind all of that. It's the glory of God. Friends, when we talk about the importance of participating in the body of Christ, of committing to loving relationships, to a covenant of accountability. These are not mere human ideas. These are God's directives of how we glorify God together as one body. These are the fruits of the Holy Spirit of God, who cre what He creates among His people, the people among whom He dwells. God's glory is manifested among us through our unity, through our sacrificial love, through our bond together, so that our, love, our life together is a reflection of the glory of God. That's our overarching purpose as a church. We exist to glorify God. But how do we accomplish this purpose? Okay, we get that. We know that. And I hope that's not a, that's not a new thing for you. We're just recounting today things you know. We're just remembering things you already should have heard before. But how do we get from the glory of God? How do, what do we do from here? How do we do that? The second reality, the two ways that we are achieving this overarching purpose. Um, the second point is two ways how we achieve this overarching purpose. First, we achieve this overarching purpose of glorifying God. By proclaiming Christ. By proclaiming Christ. What does this mean? Why do we proclaim Christ? Because remember, when we looked at the Old Testament and how the glory of God is restored in the New, it's only restored through Christ. There's no other way to restore the glory of God, which we have lost through sin, but by Christ. I love Romans 3.23. You know what it says? For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. But what's the hope? How would we get back from that? Verse 24 says that, And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ. The only way we can restore the glory of God, the only way we can be justified to God 
is through the redemption that came to us, was given to us by Christ. Not by what you do, not by trying to be a better person, not by trying to, to make it right with God, is but by accepting the gift of salvation, what God has done for us, by turning away from our sin and turning to Christ. Oh, friend, that is the first way we can glorify God, is by proclaiming Christ, not moralism, not denominationalism, but by proclaiming Christ. He's our only gateway back to the glory of God. If you were here last week, we focused a whole sermon last week about what it means to proclaim Christ, what it means to proclaim the gospel. I encourage you, if you've missed that last week, I encourage you to, to go back. We have the sermon on, on the website. But when I came to this phrase, and Paul says, by proclaiming Christ, or we proclaim Christ, I wanted to go back and say, Paul, what do you mean? What do you mean that you just proclaim Christ? Are you just saying that you're dropping the name Jesus or the name Christ in your conversations? You know, people do that, name dropping. Is that what you mean when you say proclaim Christ? Or are you talking just proclaim the gospel, the plan of salvation? What do you mean when you say we proclaim Christ? Well, I decided to look up and see what he meant about proclaiming Christ in the book of Colossians. So I read the whole book of Colossians to look specifically what Paul means by proclaiming Christ. And I found 23 references in the first three chapters. Paul refers to something about Christ 23 times. And I decided I'm going to take you through these 23 references. And my first thought is, no, Samuel, don't do that because you're going to lose him. Therefore, I'm going to try to do something to help us not to lose you. If you have a Bible, would you actually get it in your hands? Get in your hands and lift it up. I want to see you have it. Okay, we're going to go through it. 23 references. If you don't have a Bible, find one in the pew in front of you. It's on page 1021. And listen, I want you to see the, the, this list of descriptions that Paul gives for Christ and how Paul proclaims Christ in this one short letter. 23 references. Now, another way to help you fight the tendency to get lost is this. As you listen to these uh, references and these descriptions, check and see if the things that you read are things that you think about when you think of Christ. In other words, when you think of Christ, do these descriptions come to your mind? Look with that kind of intentionality. Let's see how Christ is proclaimed by the Apostle Paul. First one, first reference I found in a specific way is in verse 14 of chapter 1. In whom, and he's referring to Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And look at verse 15a, the first half of 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Look at the third description in verse 15b. He is the firstborn over all creation. Look at verse 16. For by him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Look at the fifth description in verse 17a. He is before all things. Look at the sixth description, verse six, uh, 17b. In him all things hold together. Look at verse 18a. 
He is the head of the body, the church. Look at verse 18b. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Look at verse 18c. So that in everything, he might have supremacy. Look at verse 19. God was pleased to have all his full fullness dwell in him. Look at verse 20a. God was pleased through him to reconcile to himself all things. Look at verse 20. B, his blood shed on the cross made peace. Look at verse 22. But now he, namely God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Look at verse, uh, this is our 14th reference. Uh, Look at verse 27. B, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Move to chapter 2. Our 15th reference. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. In other words, Christ is the mystery of God. Look at verse 3 in chapter 2. In whom, namely in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Move to verse 9 in chapter 2. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Look at verse 10. Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Look at verse 11 in chapter 2. In Him you were also circumcised in putting off the uh, sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Christ circumcises us. Look at a 20th reference in chapter 2, verse 15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Look at verse 17b. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Contrasting what's what's just a a foreshadow and the reality. Then verse uh, 20, verse uh, 19 in chapter 2. The spiritual man, it says, has lost connection with, I'm sorry, the unspiritual man has lost connection with a head, namely Christ, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. And then verse, in chapter 3, verse 1, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. These are 23 specific descriptions of who Jesus is or what he has done, or what he will do. Twenty-three references to Christ in three short chapters. When Paul thinks about proclaiming Christ, he's not just saying or using the name Jesus. He's actually describing who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And he's thinking of all these different dimensions and putting them in all kinds of circumstances. Paul is applying Christ to all circumstances of life. And then from chapter 3 until the end of the chapter, Paul is just drawing out implications of what it means that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, that Christ is supreme over all things. Oh, dear friends, proclaiming Christ is more than just name-dropping Jesus. It's more than just saying his name. It's actually thinking about his majesty, thinking about all the roles, all the things he has done and is. 
Friends, proclaiming Christ means connecting Him to all the areas of life and existence. Oh, friend, if you're not a Christian, perhaps you've have some, have had some church experience in the past, but this idea of Christianity, this idea of the church is still a, a very rusty experience or it has had a bad experience in the past. Friend, I don't know what you've gone through, but I want to tell you that the way God designed it to be is that it should be about proclaiming Christ. It should be about showing the excellency of Christ. About making clear, declaring with our words, with our lives, that Christ is above all things and there's no excellency above Him. So this morning, we want to let you know that Christ has paid the penalty of our rebellion so that He, and through Him, we might be restored to God so that we might have excellence to all His riches, all His treasures, all His wisdom, so that God may indeed make us partakers of His family, of His inheritance. And if you have never heard that news of the gospel until now, or perhaps you've never responded to it, friends, it's when we turn away from our own selfish rebellion and turn back to God that God gives us that inheritance. I pray and hope that today you would be interested to respond to that. And if you have any questions how to do that, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But it's all about proclaiming Christ. But I want to make sure you understand it's not, just about, it's not just about downloading information into your mind and heart about Christ. There's a second dimension of, what, of how we glorify God and what it means to proclaim Christ. The second dimension is, is that we do so by aiming to present everyone mature in Christ. By aiming to present everyone mature in Christ. The aim of our proclamation is this. To help you not only understand Christ, but let that understanding impact you. Apply it to your life. So that as you behold the glory of Christ, that beholding transforms you. So that we apply the word of Christ to our lives. Now we apply that, we seek to apply that, but we realize it's the Holy Spirit who does that work of transformation in our hearts. I love what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is Spirit. Friends, when Christ is proclaimed and when people are confronted with the truth about His glory and their sinfulness, the Holy Spirit uses that proclamation to draw us to Himself and to transform us into His likeness with an ever-increasing glory because the proclamation of Christ invites us to follow Christ. That's why the idea of not maturing or the idea of being satisfied with a basic idea of Christianity, with a basic ticket to salvation, to heaven, is so foreign to the Bible. We are rescued not simply from hell. We are rescued for God's glory. And we're being transformed into that glory every day with an ever-increasing glory. 
Oh, friend, let me ask you, is this glory ever increasing in you? Is this glory ever increasing in you? The purpose why we keep coming back to Christ, the gospel, is so that His saving power will continue to sanctify us, to transform us. Our lives continue to be under construction for the glory of God. Our lives continue to be under construction for the glory of God. And as the one who manages the construction site, it is God, through His Holy Spirit, that we look to so that that construction can go on. I'm told that on the tombstone of Ruth Bell Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, on her tombstone is written the epitaph, um, End of Construction. Thank you for your patience. Ruth Bell Graham chose these words years before her, her death. Um, they, these words come from the wording on a construction sign uh, that she once saw greeting travelers with the good news that lo the long wait and faithful patience was now being rewarded. So she said, what a marvelous image for the Christian life. A work under construction until we go to be with God. And she said, that's what I want on my tombstone. That's what it is. Now what's amazing about this Epitaph is its appropriateness as a metaphor for the Christian life, a work under construction. We have not yet arrived at the goal of our salvation. Our salvation is still in process. Our salvation is not an event. It's a process. Beginning in the event of conversion, for sure. But it's all going on, even now, until we reach that day when our salvation will be complete. Friends, until that day, God continues to build us. The purpose why, the goal why we proclaim Christ is not simply for conversion, but for completion. The purpose why we proclaim Christ is not simply for conversion, but for completion. We proclaim Christ not simply to usher people into a relationship with Him, but also to mature them into Christ. Conversion and sanctification are not identical. They're separate things, but they're not separate. Conversion and, and, and sanctification are not identical. They're separate things, but they're not separate. They go hand in hand. Therefore, dear friend, if, if our Christian life is more like a work under construction rather than a ticket to heaven. There's a very practical reminder. Have you ever driven through construction zones? Do you like it? No, nobody does. It's dangerous. There are people who are walking around the construction site. You got to slow down, you change lanes. You sometimes are upset. Why is somebody telling me to slow down? I don't want to. Why is somebody putting the stop sign? I need to get to work. Don't they know I need to get to my job? We don't like it when others stop us. Because we, that's what the construction sign requires. But friends, when we realize that the Christian life 
is more like a construction site than a highway that's ready and finished that you can cruise on and not worry about others. When we realize that our Christian lives is more like a construction site, it reminds us of the last part of how we proclaim Christ and how we aim this maturity. We aim to do so by correcting everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. It takes correction and teaching. It takes the interference of others to get involved in our lives and tell us, slow down, buddy. Or now you can go. Change lanes. When we go through construction sites, others interfere through with us. And that's the life of the church. Others interfere with us, don't they? But you know how they do so for our good. They do so because that's how God builds us up. God is the one who builds this construction site. We're not just traveling through a construction zone, friends. We are the construction zone. We are the ones who get built up. The construction zone is not just an inconvenience. We are being built into a picture of the beauty and glory of God. That's why we should put up with a construction site. Because the end result of what we're being made into is far superior, far better than we ever are in these moments. That's why in our mission statement, we say we exist to glorify God by proclaiming Christ. And then the next two words are warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. There's some people who don't like the fact that we have the word warning in our mission statement. Because it doesn't sound inviting. But friends, that's what people do in construction sites. There's all kinds of warning signs. Why would we let people go through construction sites without giving the warnings? I love what the Apostle Paul says even about his gospel. He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 and, uh, verse 8 and 10, he says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Why? He says, because they refuse to obey the gospel. Paul says, if you, obey, if you obey the gospel, you get the glory of God. If you refuse to obey the gospel, what's awaiting you is to suffer the punishment of the eternal destruction. Then in Romans 2, it's 16, Paul speaks about the day of judgment. And he says, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? What amazed me in that verse is Paul says, according to my gospel, on that day God will judge the secrets of men's hearts. When I read that verse, here's the first question that came to mind. Samuel, are those truths a part of your gospel? Do we give warnings when we preach the gospel? I know it's not fun. It may not be the first thing we want to say, but do we tell people that this news that we're proclaiming to them, it's so serious that if they refuse it, there is a day of judgment and an eternal wrath of God. And then for the Christian life, is there a place for warnings in the Christian life? We don't like to warn fellow believers about their daily walk with Jesus. I was reminded of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, this, everybody loves the Sermon on the Mount, right? I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful sermon. 
You know, Jesus at one point speaks about adultery, how it's bad for you. But then he goes a step further. He says it's not just committing the sexual sin. It's actually looking at a woman lustfully. That's bad enough already. And actually Jesus says something incredibly powerful. He says, it is better for you to go with, without one member of the body and to live on this earth without one member of the body than to go to hell and suffer for eternity. Go for the rest of your life without a hand, without an eye. What a tragedy that would be, right? Our, our lives would be so altered if all of a sudden we fall blind or deaf or we, or we have a handicap. But you know what Jesus says? It is better to go with, through that handicap than suffer the eternal damnation of hell. That comparison is a, is a great warning about the seriousness of sin. Next time you think about sinning, think of that warning. What Jesus says. Friends, the Christian life is a construction zone. And there should be warning signs. And those warning signs should help us. Should help us to drive carefully. Should help us to comply with the master builder of this construction zone. Because he's the one who built us up into a beautiful picture of the glory of God. Friends, that's what we are about. And if people ask you what is Spark Hills about, we exist to glorify God. By proclaiming Christ warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I hope you get it. If you're a member of this church, I hope you get it. I hope you join that. I hope you pray for that, that God enables us to do this. If you're not a member of this congregation, we'd love to encourage you and invite you to consider becoming one. That's what we're about. If you would consider to sign on, that's what you're signing on for, to be a construction site until God matures us. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the work of redemption in Christ. We praise you that what Christ has done for us, none of us could have done on our own. We thank you that you have taken upon yourself the initiative to build us back into your image, to bring us back to yourself. We thank you that it is as we look to Christ that this image is continually restored, continually renewed into an ever-increasing glory. Oh, Lord, give us patience to put up with this construction site. Give us wisdom. Forgive us when we are so individualistic that we care more about our own private lives than about the life you have called us to live in the community of the saints for the glory of God. Oh, Lord, enable us as a community, as a church, to be at the place that displays the glory of Christ, the glory of the gospel through our life together. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I invite you to stand once more and sing with us as we...